on the Christian calendar, Advent is a season leading up to Christmas, the four weeks leading to Christmas. There's this observance of Advent that Christians have participated in for a couple of thousand years as we recognize that before Christ came, the world was in utter darkness. But when Christ came, a great light shined. We were brightened by the light of Christ. And in that light, there was great hope. We as Baptists traditionally don't care much about the Christian calendar. We have really not participated in the Christian calendar as a matter of Baptist heritage, not intentionally, but I think as part of a reaction to sort of the higher church and the independent spirit that Baptists have. And I think that's good and all right, but lately I have really come to value the Christian calendar and Baptists for the last 10 or 15 years have started to value the Christian calendar more is I think we've started to realize how much of the calendar that we live our lives by is set by each one of us as we have our personal calendars and is set by our nation as we have kind of declared holidays that have nothing to do with Jesus and that orient ourselves to live in a way that tends to forget who Jesus is. And so Christians for decades have lamented the Christmas season that has been set up by our culture to be a season of uh, self-importance and of getting and of forgetting Christ. And so in response to that, I think there's been a movement among Christians to reorient ourselves to the Christian calendar and say, this is what our lives are oriented by, similar to the way that the ancient Jews had their lives oriented by the festivals and celebrations that were given to them. And so I think that it's appropriate for us in these four weeks of Advent leading up to the celebration of the birth of Christ to orient ourselves in a way that would remind us what Christ's birth is all about. And Christ's birth does something for us where he brings empty people to be filled, hungry people to be fed, and lost people to be found in Jesus Christ. And I think that we see this displayed in a narrative and really in a prophetic way in the book of Ruth. And so Lord willing, for the next four to six weeks, we will work through the book of Ruth, seeking to steer our souls and our thinking in a way that reflects rightly upon Christ's incarnation and birth, and then his following death and resurrection in a time where it's on our calendars to celebrate it, but we're often tempted to celebrate as consumers and as forgetters of Christ instead of as true Christians. So turn, if you would, to Ruth chapter one. And this morning, we're going to consider just the first five verses. Okay, so the, the way that the celebration of Christmas should work, if we're going to do it in terms of Advent, is it's working from a darker season to the brightness of Christ's light. So we think of Christ's birth coming at like the darkest time in human history, or at least in biblical history. We think of the end of the Old Testament and then this period, we sometimes call it the period of silence between the prophets of the Old Testament and John the Baptist in the New Testament and the Gospels. And it's this period of great darkness. Well, this week, we are going to reflect upon the darkest time in the book of Ruth as we progressively enter into the brightness of the incarnation in Christ's birth in the coming weeks. That being said, to read Ruth, we have to set aside maybe some wrong readings of Ruth that we're tempted to have. And I think the primary, primary wrong way to read the book of Ruth is to read it with a Hallmark movie in mind. All right. I, I remember in college, I was in a Bible class led by a well-meaning individual. And the class was essentially how to find a girlfriend and maintain a relationship with principles from the book of Ruth. I think that was an, a nice thing that was happening there. I don't think that's what the book of Ruth is intended to do for us. And so if that's the way you've read Ruth, or if when you hear about the book of Ruth, you just start thinking in terms of the greatest love story ever told, you know, or a Hallmark movie, I just suggests that you should set that aside and try to hear Ruth differently, perhaps for the first time, but perhaps, you know, just 
try not to think in terms of a Christmas Hallmark movie, and instead try to think in terms of God's work in the nation of Israel during a very dark time. Now, the way that we read Ruth, and really the way we read any story, takes on a different color depending on where that story is located in the Bible. Okay, so the arrangement of the biblical books sort of clue us into how we should hear them. And strangely, the book of Ruth is placed in different places in the Old Testament, depending on the arrangement of the canon that you come across. There are three primary arrangements of the Old Testament. I should also pause here and just warn you today, because we're getting into the book of Ruth, there's a lot of background information. And so some of this might feel more like a history lesson or a Old Testament class or something like that. That's okay, because it's going to help us read the rest of Ruth really well. But when we come to the Old Testament, there are three primary arrangements of the Old Testament, and Ruth is placed in, different, in a different order of the Old Testament in each one of them. In one arrangement of the Old Testament, the book of Ruth is placed immediately prior to the book of Psalms. And the, the idea there is that the book of Ruth ends with the genealogy of David and the opening to Psalms begins primarily with Psalms either written by David or for David. And so there's a connection between the narrative history of Israel climaxing in the genealogy of David and the book of Psalms, which are primarily written by David in the opening there. So that's one placement for the book of Ruth, and it kind of colors the way we hear things. The second placement for the book of Ruth is immediately following the book of Proverbs. Okay, so Proverbs ends with Proverbs 31, and there's this question that's raised, how can a man find a, a wife or something like that? I forget the exact wording, but essentially it's how, how can someone find a noble woman for a wife? And then, and, and then there's this, this description of the noble woman. There's this description of that noble man who sits in the city gates. And then there's the placement of the book of Ruth immediately following that, almost as an illustration of how a noble man finds a noble woman for a wife and what that noble woman looks like. And this is where we can forgive the Bible class teacher that I had in college who taught Ruth as, you know, as principles for, you know, maintaining a good relationship. It's because people have received the book of Ruth and understood it in some sense to be reflective of the way that men and women ought to live with noble character and relate to one another in marriage. And really, if we read it in that way, the answer to how can someone find a good wife it's by being a good person, by be living with character, obeying the law of God, and expressing faithfulness and steadfast love to others. I think both of these arrangements of the Hebrew Bible help us get an angle on the book of Ruth, but I think that the, the arrangement that we find in our Bibles, in the English Bibles, that's reflect, reflective of the arrangement of the Greek Old Testament that places the book of Ruth between Judges and 1 Samuel is the primary color that we should read this book with. And that's because of the content of the book itself where it is set during the times of the Judges. And this placement of the book of, the Ruth, of Ruth between the Judges and 1 Samuel acts as a bridge in Israel's history between a time when the Judges ruled and the time when the Kings ruled. And so in that way, the book of Ruth at a meta level is functioning as a bridge between two distinct periods in Israel's history. I think as we get to the end of the book of Ruth, this will become more important, but it's helpful for us because if, we've, if we're reading through the Old Testament, as I think we all should, if you finish reading the book of Judges, then when the book of Ruth opens with the phrase, during the time of the judges, you're going to have a certain idea in your mind about that time period. This is similar to if you're going to watch a movie and you're asking somebody about it and they tell you that it's set during the World War II era, there are certain contexts that are going to be in your mind that will make more sense of what's going on in the narrative. 
So when you see people standing with hands raised, like a crowd of people with hands raised, a guy with a mustache, you know what's going on. No one even needs to tell you that this is a nefarious ruler who's trying to take over the world. You just know that because the story started out by saying in World War II era Germany, you, you just know what's going on. And if there was someone watching that movie who knew nothing about World War II, and they, they just made the assumption that this guy with the stash that everyone's saluting is a good guy, you're going to tell them, no, you're misled. This is during, this is during the time of World War II. That's actually a really bad guy. So that one phrase clues you in to how you ought to read the rest of the, the story. And that's what this one phrase is doing for us. That phrase during the time of the judges colors everything that's going to follow. And if you haven't read the book of Judges, and if you don't know what happened during the time of the judges, you could potentially misread the situation of verses one through five of the book of Ruth. I'm going to fill some of those in there for us and try to help us see that. But if you want to have a greater sense of what's happening in the book of Ruth, as we go through this, I would encourage you to this week, read the book of Judges. There are only 21 chapters, and really it's just a handful of narratives, really I think five or six primary stories that occur in the book of Judges, and that will help you understand uh, some of the nuances of the book of Ruth. I think then that as we get into the book of Ruth, if we're reading the phrase during the time of the Judges, we're going to realize that this is a very dark period in Israel's history. This is not a happy time. Um, this, this is a time where, the, where God's people are not living in covenant faithfulness to him. Where, and, and because of that, they're not experiencing the blessings of the covenant that God made with Israel. So if we remember rightly, God made promises to Abraham, these promises that included land and seed or offspring and blessing. And these, these promises had started to be fulfilled in the nation of Israel as they left Egypt in the Exodus. They left as a nation, so that blessing, the promise of seed or offspring had started to be fulfilled. And they were going into the land of promise, so the, the promise of land is starting to be fulfilled. And they were experiencing blessing. Anyone who contact them, contacted them favorably in the Exodus, they were met with blessing. People who did not bless Israel, they were met with cursing. So Egypt is the prime example. They had the plagues and then Israel left with all of Egypt's wealth. So those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. Well, when we get to the time of the judges, uh, we start to see a record of deficiencies on Israel's behalf that result in a lack of God making good on the covenant blessings. So when we read Judges, these individuals fail to occupy the land as they are commanded to do and as God has given them the land. So that blessing, that promise of the land is not being capitalized on by the nation of Israel. And then as you read further, these Israelites start worshiping false gods and so they go through periodic times of exile uh, in terms of a foreign king ruling over them. So there's this phrase regularly throughout the book of Judges that there was no king over Israel. And whenever there was a king, it was a foreign king ruling over them. And then by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, there's one entire tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel that's almost completely wiped out. And so this promise of offspring or seed is in jeopardy as well. The land is in jeopardy. The seed is in jeopardy. The, the blessing as a whole is absent on the nation of Israel. Now, periodically, God raises up a judge and the people return to God and repent. And they experience the blessings of the covenant for a generation or two before there's another cycle of idolatry and failure to maintain faithfulness with God that leads to a lack of the blessings of the covenant. Now, Josh read about some of those from Deuteronomy. And so why don't we turn there as we just highlight this, that if Israel was not faithful to God, then they would not experience the blessing of the covenant. 
So turn to Deuteronomy 7. Um, I'll just read a few verses here for you that paint the covenantal context. If Israel was faithful to God, they'd experience the blessings of the covenant. If they were unfaithful to God, they would not. So Deuteronomy 7 verse 12, if you listen to and are careful to keep these ordinances, the Lord your God will keep his covenant loyalty with you as he soared to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will bless your offspring and produce your land and the produce of your land, your grain, new wine, and fresh oil, the young of your herds, the newborn of your flocks, and the land he swore to your fathers that he would give you. You will be blessed above all peoples. There will be no infertile male or female among your livestock. The Lord will remove all sickness from you. He will not put on you all the terrible diseases of Egypt that you know about, but he will inflict them on all who hate you. You must destroy all the people the Lord your God is delivering over to you and not look on them with pity. Do not worship their gods, for that will be a snare to you. So this is the setting. If you maintain covenant faithfulness, land and offspring and life and blessing will be yours. If you don't maintain covenant faithfulness, if you enter into idolatry, or if you, if you allow the people who are in the land who need to be removed from the land to maintain and thrive there, you are not going to receive the blessings of the covenant. And one of the key ways that God would seek to call his people back to themselves is through famine and hunger. So in Deuteronomy 8, 3, Moses writes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry. So the way that he humbles this prideful people is by letting them go hungry. And then when they repent, he feeds them. So then he gave you manna to eat so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. All right, this is the setting that you have to have or else you're not going to understand what's going on in the book of Ruth where there is a lack of the promises, we can infer the, the author's implying that there's also a lack of faithfulness on the part of people to God. So when we read in the first verse of Ruth that during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land, we need to understand that in terms of God's people not being faithful to him and the famine coming as a means by which he would call his people to repentance and he would humble them. And when they would return to him, he would, he would give them the blessings of the covenant. So that is what every Israelite should be doing during this time. During the famine, they should be repenting of sin and returning to God. Now, some people, when they read the book of Ruth and some commentators look on this famine as something that's just neutral as if it's just a, a natural event that has no connection to God. I, I don't think we should read it that way just for no, for no other reason, because everyone during that time would have connected natural events to the work of God or to the work of a territorial God. You know, so, so no one reading this and no one living during that time would have thought that this famine is just some natural occurrence without any implication for a deity behind it. So just on that basis alone, I think we need to read this famine in terms of a work of God. Uh, but we, we also need to, I think, understand that this famine is putting in jeopardy the promises of God, and it's a result of the unfaithfulness of God's people. So this is not a morally neutral event. It's an event that's intended to bring people to repentance. So then the next sentence that we read is that a man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. This should strike you as wrong based on everything that we've considered so far. The hunger was meant to humble God's people and draw them back to him in repentance but there is a man who instead of repenting and calling out for God to bring food to the land and in repenting of covenant unfaithfulness, this family responds to the famine by leaving Bethlehem to go to Moab temporarily. 
Now, in the narrative, the, the reader is expected to understand that this is bad. So the way stories work, authors don't always tell you when someone's doing something's wrong, something that's wrong. They show you that the person is doing something wrong. And so it's up to the reader to discern between right and wrong in the action of the characters. And I think based on what we've read in Deuteronomy and what we've read in Judges or considered from Judges, we should interpret leaving the land as something that's a wrong response to famine. There are other reasons that we should consider this response of leaving the land as a negative response and not morally neutral. First, there is literary irony in the fact that the man and his family left Bethlehem during a famine. So the, the name Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And so th they're the reason that Bethlehem is reiterated multiple times in these five verses is that the author is trying to show us the irony that there's a family leaving the house of bread to go to Moab. Okay, so if you're in a famine, the place you want to be out of all the places is in the house of bread. So for the person to leave the house of bread is ironic, and it raises the question of whether there's virtue or relief anywhere else. If the house of bread is without bread, are you going to find that anywhere else? So one guy wrote, and I think he put this really well, Israel's failure to keep God's covenant brought about God's righteous judgment, which meant the house of bread had been diminished to a house of crumbs. Okay, that's what's happening in Bethlehem. So that's one reason to suggest that this man and his family are not acting in a virtuous way. But then second, that irony is heightened by the fact that the man left the house of bread for the territory of Moab. Okay, and later in the verse in the Christian Standard Bible, it translates it as the fields of Moab. Well, it's the same word in both places. And what's being highlighted is that this family is leaving the safety of the house of bread to go to the fields of Moab, this open place in seeking to harvest grain from the field. And that's a theme that's going to show up later in Ruth, this going into the field. Well, they're going into the field of Moab, hoping to circumvent God's judgment on Israel to find bread there. So those are two reasons, the, the house of bread, now this field, this open field. But the third reason to suggest that they, this family is not acting in faith, that they're not acting virtuously, is that they're not only leaving the land, which is something like a self-imposed exile, but they're also going to the land of Moab. And in the book of the Judges, the Moabite rulers at one time ended up ruling over Israel in their own land. And now this family is voluntarily going to Moab to be ruled over essentially by this foreign nation. Now, what's even worse about this, or maybe more ironic about this, is that Israel has a long history with Moab, and it's not a good history. So Israel, this nation of Israel, is the descendant of Abraham, right? Through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now you have the nation of Israel. Well, early on in Genesis, the foil to Israel, or to Abraham, the opposite character of Abraham is Lot. Lot goes to Sodom and Gomorrah and eventually Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed and Lot's wife is killed in that act of judgment. And so we end up with Lot and his daughters. Well, Lot's daughters say, we need to carry on the name of our father. And so they get him drunk and sleep with him. And one of the daughters through her line and through Lot's line comes the nation of Moab. And so what we're intended to see here is that Abraham's people are not content to live in the land that God gave to Abraham, and they're not content to return to the God of Abraham. Instead, they go to the people of Lot who have rejected the God of Abraham. And so there's this irony between Israel, Bethlehem, and Moab that's being brought that every Israelite, I think, would have sensed in reading this text. Furthermore, while Israel was wandering in the wilderness and they came across Moab asking for food, the Moabites refused to give them food. And instead, Balak, the king of Moab, hired Balaam, this prophet, to curse Israel. And so Israel's dealings with the Moabites in terms of food has never been positive. They've only been denied food in the land of Moab. 
Um, and in fact, the way that the Moabites talk about the Israelites when they're going to hire this prophet to, to curse the Israelites, the Moabites say this horde, referring to Israel, talking about them in a negative way, this horde will devour everything around us like an ox who eats up the green plants in the field. Okay, so in, in Numbers, they talk about Israel that way. So the Moabite, to, to think as an Israelite that you will find food and a gracious welcome from the Moabites is really um, not a clear way of seeing reality, especially when you're supposed to understand this famine is a result of your covenant unfaithfulness to God. So to go to the people of the Moabites is to exile yourself from the, the promised land that God had given to his people. As a result of that, Yahweh, the God of Israel, in these covenant stipulations in Deuteronomy, commands that Israelites not marry the Moabites and that the Israelites do not permit the Moabites into the assembly of Israel until the 10th generation. And if we're calculating generations based on some of these genealogies here, this is still in that generation, okay? This is given in Deuteronomy. The Israelites are about to enter into the land. They fail to enter into the land. And we're going to see here that they fail to look at the Moabites as they're intended to look at them as sort of the offspring of the serpent, the seed of the serpent rather than the seed of the woman, the offspring of Lot rather than the offspring of Abraham. So for these reasons... I think that it's right for us to say that this man from Bethlehem should never have ventured into the land of Moab to find bread, to find food. Instead, he should have stuck it out in Israel and should have repented and called on Yahweh to visit them with food. And that, I think, is the final reason we, we need to look at this and say this is a dark time in Israel and a dark time in this man in his family's life because later on, Yahweh does, Yahweh is a covenant name for God. The Lord visits Israel with bread. Okay, he visits them with food. And we get the sense that none of, uh, none of the other people in Israel left to go to Moab to avoid this famine. Everyone else stayed there and they lived through this famine, which raises, you know, the judgment of this man in leaving during that time. But the individuals who stayed were there when God visited them with food. When, when Yahweh paid attention to them and he visited them and provided for them, they got to experience that firsthand. In the same way that those who are wandering in the wilderness got to experience the manna firsthand over against people who would have complained and would have wanted to go back to Egypt for food. Well, any, if any of those Israelites had gone after the Gleeks and the onions and the, and the great food of Egypt, they wouldn't have been there when the manna came in the wilderness. And this family was not there when Yahweh came back with food to his people. And so we should understand this family not in positive terms. And we should not understand the decisions that they make to be decisions of righteousness or made with prudence or virtue. All right? So we move on then to this movement. So it says, during the time of Judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah and his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. So he's going to sojourn here. The language here is of a temporary visit just for some time. Now the man's name was Elimelech and his wife's name was Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. Now, again, this comes through a little bit better in the Hebrew because the meaning of names come out a little bit more there. But the man's name, Elimelech, means my God is king. So there's supposed to be some irony here because this is taking place during the time of the judges where the only kings that have shown up are kings of other nations and instead of living under the kingship of Yahweh, every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. And that is Elimelech to a T. In his own eyes, it's right to leave the land. Even though his name declares, my God is king. This guy is not submitting to the kingship of God. You would expect him to, but he's, he's not. He's, he's rebelling against the God who is his king. Now, the man's wife was named Naomi, or more literally, Noomi. 
uh, but Naomi is the way that it's rendered and, and we'll go with that. Her name means something like pleasant. All right, so uh, this again is in contrast to the situation that they're in. They're in an unpleasant situation. And in fact, their situation will become more unpleasant as we go. And as we get into the story later on, her name will, will come up again. Now, this couple had two sons, Malon and Killian. Now, the way that these sons are introduced, it seems as if Naomi and Elimelech may have had other children at some time. Uh, it, this again comes through better in, in the Hebrew. He went with his wife and two of his sons is what it says. And you start to get the idea that perhaps this couple had had children who had died in, uh, in childbirth or earlier or, or in their youth, which is not uncommon, especially during a time of famine in these days. And it gives some explanation for the names of their sons, which means something like sickly and frailty. Okay, so why would they name their son sickly and frailty? The, you know, I, I think on the one hand, we could say that the narrator of this story is giving them different names for the sake of the story that will foreshadow their future. But I think more likely what's going on here is that you have this couple during the time of the judges when land and blessing and offspring, these promises of the covenant, are not, are not really seen that much. And so, though it's speculation, I think that they probably have had children who have died in infancy or in childbirth or, or have had miscarriages. And so then on the, on the birth of these sons, very often women and men would name their children based on the circumstances of their birth. Probably these two sons were born in a less than ideal condition. They're probably noticeably frail. And so they get these names of weak and sickly or, or frailty and death, or there's kind of a range of what these names could have been. But I think you just have this cynical couple naming their children in terms of the circumstances of their birth. And in a very, well, somewhat literary ironic way, their names are foreshadowing their ends, okay? So this family, the, the names of the parents promise great things. My God is king and pleasantness, but the name of their children foreshadow the outcome of this family's existence, all right? Now, as, as we move forward then, we're looking at this family and were reminded that they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, we'll, when we connect to the genealogy at the end of our series, we'll consider what it means to be an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in Judah more. But the point is that they're from the house of bread in the land that God has, had given to Israel, and they voluntarily left. They entered the fields of Moab, and they settled there. So no longer is it just a language of sojourning there or dwelling there temporarily, but now they've settled there. It's almost as if they've decided this is where we're going to be. And in that way, once again, I think they follow in the line of Lot, who looked to one side, it was beautiful, it was pleasant, like the Garden of Eden to him, but I think his perception was wrong and he settled there and eventually became a man of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, you have this couple now who are looking at Bethlehem and saying, there's nothing for us here. The fields of Moab look really good, perhaps like the Garden of Eden, that's where we'll find life and sustenance that mitigates death. We're moving there and now they've settled in the land of Moab. We continue reading, though, in verse 3, that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. So we've already had famine, which is, a, you know, a removal of food, which mitigates death and sustains life. Well, now this man dies. There's no explanation given for it. We don't know how he died or why he died. But I think given the backdrop that we have, we ought to understand it as a disciplinary act of God that this man died. Evidently prematurely and, and perhaps unexpectedly. And now Naomi is left alone with her two sons. And as significant as Naomi's death or as Elimelech's death is, what's more significant now is that Naomi becomes the key figure in this story. 
Elimelech is now talked about in terms of his relationship to Naomi. And throughout the rest of the story, every character that's introduced is going to be introduced with respect to their relationship to Naomi, indicating that this story is primarily about Naomi. Regardless of the name of the book, this story is a story about Naomi. Her husband has now died. And so as, a, as we're reading this with the covenant stipulations in view, one of the main questions we have is who's going to take care of Naomi now? Who is going to be the redeemer of Naomi? Who is going to marry Naomi and take care of her now that she's left alone? And that's heightened more as we go, but she's left behind with her two sons. Verse four, her sons took Moabite women as wives. Now we've already considered how this probably should not have happened. It was probably wrong for them to take Moabite women as wives. In fact, it was prohibited for Israelites to marry Moabites. And one of the key reasons for that prohibition was because God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, did not want them to start worshiping false gods as they married women who worshiped false gods. Well, if we're looking at the history of the Bible, these two sons should not have found wives from the land of Moab. They should have instead said, we need to, as is incumbent upon us to carry on the line of our father, we need to find wives and we need to marry and we need to have children, but we need to go to the land of our father to find wives. This is what they had modeled in the patriarchs where Abraham sent his servant to find a wife from the land of his father for his son. This is what was modeled by Jacob in contrast to Esau. Esau married Canaanite wives while their parents sent Jacob to the land of his father to find a wife. Well, these sons should have gone to the land of their father to find a wife. Instead, they took a uh, a clue and a, a prompt from do, the Lot, Lot's daughters, who instead of going to Abraham to find husbands to carry on their father's lines, and instead they turn to their father himself. Now these sons of Elimelech in, take that same cue and turn to the land of Moab to find wives to carry on the line of their father. So this taking of Moabite wives, we should hear as negative and not as positive. This is emphasized in the Hebrew text in the verb that's used for taking a wife. The verb that's used there is really rare with, in, in terms of marriage. It happens on occasion, but it's always in a negative context. And when, it ha- when that verb is used in the context of Ruth, in the surrounding context, it's in the last chapter of the book of Judges. Okay, in the last chapter of Judges, the Benjaminites, this entire tribe is almost wiped out. And so they uh, eventually kill a whole town and these Benjaminites take wives from that town, but there are 200 guys left over without wives. And so these 200 guys capture or kidnap 200 virgins who are celebrating a festival to the Lord. And that's how they find their wives and carry on this tribe of Israel. So there's a similar problem. How will this line be carried on? And they solve it by kidnapping women and making them their wives. That's a bad thing, okay? Well, that same verb is used when it's talking about Malon and Killian taking wives from the land of Moab. Now, I'm not suggesting that they kidnap these women, but that there's a literary work of irony going on here that's indicating to us that we should understand Malon and Killian now is sort of being kidnapped by Moab. They're now being drawn into the land of Moab. They're being drawn into the families of Moab. And inevitably, they're going to worship the God of Moab, this God, um, Kamosh, who's this false God, okay? So this marriage, this taking of wives is a negative thing, particularly because they didn't return to the land of their fathers. Now, one was named Orpah and the second was named Ruth. These names are significant as well. Orpah is a little bit more of an obscure name, but it means something like back of neck or obstinate or something like that. And then the name of Ruth means something like refreshment or friendship. And these names are going to be important as we go because they sort of signal the character of these two women as well. 
but they've taken wives and they have tied themselves to Moab and to the women of Moab and therefore to the God of Moab. But we continue to read, after they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died. So, so father died, now the sons have died. And again, I think we should understand this is the disciplining hand of Yahweh who's seeking to bring his people back to himself. And, and even the way that it talks about Ruth being left, that's the same language that's used in other places in the Old Testament for a remnant of Israel that's left after God kills off a bunch of other Israelites in an act of judgment. But these two guys die and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. Now, I think there are two points of significance here. One is that it says Naomi was left without her two children. And the word that's used there is this word for young children that's never used at any other time for grown men who have married. And the point we're supposed to get is that even though these two guys are grown men, they're Naomi's little boys. And she's just been robbed of all the family she's ever had. So she had left Bethlehem to flee death from famine. Well, now she's, she's felt death in every sector of her life. Her husband and her two boys are gone. And this is emphasizing for us this theme of offspring that's throughout the Old Testament. And that's going to be prevalent in the book of Ruth as well. And that's emphasized secondarily then with this line that after they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died. Now, it might be saying that from the time they left Bethlehem to the time they died, 10 years had, come, had passed. But I think it's actually communicating that from the time Malon and Kilion married these two women, they lived for 10 more years and then they died. And what that should immediately show us is that during 10 years of marriage, these two guys had zero children. And so that blessing of offspring is notably absent. There are no children for Malon and Killian, which means that the line of Elimelech will not be carried on, which is a significant thing for Israel, for the line of the father to be carried on through sons. And so now you have Naomi left all alone. What this does for us in setting up the story is it puts Naomi as the key figure. And if it makes us ask some questions like, how will Elimelech's line be carried on through Naomi? She's the central figure here. Now we've heard of other things as we've read the Old Testament where a relative would marry the woman, a widow, and, and there would be children that would be born and the first child would sort of be the one who is representative of the husband's seed and he'd carry on that husband's name. So perhaps something like that will happen. Or... Will Yahweh's attempts at bringing about repentance in Naomi have failed? And will she be the next one to die? Or will she repent? We're left with these sorts of questions. And these are the kinds of questions we should be asking as we progress further in the book of Ruth. So it's a dark time. How should we respond to this? I would suggest that as we read this story, there are a few responses that we should have here. And the first is that we should consider our lives and try to identify the ways in which we attempt to subvert God's disciplining hand in our lives by finding life and freedom and satisfaction anywhere else. Now, you and I, as individuals in a naturalistic society that doesn't like to attribute anything that happens in our lives or in the world to the work of God, we often miss hardship in our life and, and we often fail to think about that hardship in terms of what God might be doing in our lives through it. But I think that you and I, as we encounter challenges in our lives and as we see challenges in our world, we th should think primarily in terms of what God is doing in history through these events in the world and consider what God is trying to work in us through those events. Now, we cannot say, because we do not have prophets telling us that things like COVID and 
hard winters and a, a low bank account is God disciplining you. We don't have prophets to confirm that, but I think we should, anytime we encounter hardship, consider the fact that anything we good have, it, that anything good that we have comes from God. And anytime we're experiencing lack, it should humble us just as hunger was intended to humble the Israelites. And in that humility, as we realize that there are situations totally outside of our control, we should return to the Lord with greater dependence on him. And we should try to recognize what parts of our lives are we trying to play God in. As we try to avoid death from COVID or any other thing, as we try to secure wealth from working 80 hour weeks or in any other way, as we try to secure comfort and satisfaction through manipulating others or, or in crushing others to get what we want, we need to evaluate our lives and ask, how are we circumventing the good discipline of God by setting ourselves up as God in our life and trying to avoid his disciplining hand in our life? I think that's one response we should have to these five verses. How are we trying to contrive a way to avoid God's disciplining hand and in so doing, set ourselves up as God? And if you are in your mind right now suggesting that you would never do that, I would submit that you are misguided because this is how humans have been operating from the beginning. When God cursed Adam and Eve with death, as a result of their covenant unfaithfulness, they were going to try to circumvent that death, not by the means that God gave them of childbirth and tilling the land and, and reaping food that would mitigate death, but by sneaking into the garden and trying to possess this tree of life so that they'd live forever and circumvent and contrive a way around God's judgment and discipline. From the very beginning, humans have done that. Elimelech and his family tried to do that. And you and I tried to do that all the time. And if you are having trouble seeing how you do that in your life, if you're married, ask your spouse how you try to do that. And if they don't have an answer, sit down with one, one of us in this room. And I think we'd be happy to talk through with you how we ourselves do that. And that might give you insight into how you do that whether that's through lying to get out of trouble or cheating to get a good grade on a test or manipulating someone to get something you want or breaking off relationships because they're hard or leaving your church because it's not what you want it to be. We do all sorts of things just to try to make our life comfortable instead of allowing God to discipline us. And, and then we fail to reap the benefits when God visits his grace on us through that discipline. So then I think the second response would, to that would be when you identify ways that you try to construct a way out of God's disciplining hand, you should repent and endure the discipline. Repent and endure the discipline because on the other side of that discipline, you will be visited by the Lord. You'll be visited by the Lord. This is how James talks about our trials is discipline from the Lord that produce steadfastness and endurance. And we receive the crown, which is life. Well, if we can remain faithful to God through our trials and through the discipline in our lives, then I believe that we will be met by God with grace. Now, this doesn't mean that we never leave a hard situation. We're, we're not in the covenant construct that Israel was in where they were not to leave the land. So there may be times when God does pull us away from a hard situation. But I think we should be warned against thinking that the grass is greener on the other side. Because while we might think that, when we go to the other side, we might find out that the grace is not greater on the other side. And in fact, God is giving us grace on this side of the pasture where the grass is not very green, but his grace is going to get us through it. And when we're tempted to circumvent a way around God's grace that gives us endurance through a trial and through God's discipline, I think that we need to repent and ask God for forgiveness and grace to maintain faithfulness to him, regardless of the circumstance we're in. So, that, so first, I'm suggesting we should respond 
to this by recognizing the ways that we try to to construct and contrive ways around God's discipline in the hard situations in our lives. And then second, I'm suggesting that we should repent of those things and pray for God to meet us in our discipline and in our trial. And then third, I think that we should respond as we identify these ways that we try to set ourselves up as God by trusting God with your life and circumstances. By simply trusting God to work with you where you are in the pain you're experiencing, in the darkness that's before you, knowing that God will give grace to his people and that regardless of what you do, you're not the answer. So instead of trusting yourself, repent and follow that up with trusting God for your life, where you are, for your flourishing. Trust God wherever you are. And I think one of the biggest manifestations of our trust in God is simply by crying out to him in prayer. This is why on December 5th, on Saturday, we are going to have a church prayer gathering so that we can declare to God, we are going to trust you. We don't want to contrive a way to get what we think this church needs. We want to press forward in hard work and faithful obedience, but ultimately we're trusting you to give us life and flourishing in the blessing of the new covenant, which is your presence among us. We're not going to try to get that in any other way. So I would encourage you as an act of trust in God, show up here on Saturday at 9 a.m. as we appeal to God for endurance and for faithfulness as we seek to live before him. Then finally, I think we ought to respond to the failures of Elimelech and his family, which are representative of the failures of Israel at that time by considering where our hope ought to be because we are just as misguided and misled as Elimelech and his family. And so where does the answer come? Well, we are, I think, in a season that we call the Christmas season or Advent season. We're in a spot where the answer is before us everywhere we look. The answer to our our lack of faith is Jesus Christ. He is the one who moves us from darkness into light. And he is the one who abides in us so that as we walk through the darkness, we remain in the light as we remain with him. And so I would encourage you, if you, as you think about your life, would say, I am one who have never actually turned to Christ. I have never actually looked to Christ as the one who gives hope and life and flourishing. And instead, I have tried to construct my own way to life and flourishing and peace with God. I would encourage you to repent and trust in Jesus, to turn to him and to look nowhere else for that life that comes only through Jesus Christ, who is the way and he is the true way to life everlasting. And if you would say, I am a Christian. I have turned to Christ. And in fact, I have a pattern in my life of repenting and believing. I would just urge you once again to continue to repent and believe and turn to Christ. And as we think about this Advent season and as we enter into Christmas day and we think about Christ, I would encourage you to declare that Christ to all that you meet. Take advantage of this time where it's normal to talk about the birth and incarnation of Jesus with people who don't care about Jesus and speak the words of truth that are found in Christ alone. Speak these words of Christ so that others will receive Christ because he's the one in whom all God's promises find their yes and amen. So let's be the Christ people who declare this and who repent and believe and follow after him.